0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to Loving Liberty. So glad you could join us for today's broadcast. It is Tuesday, the 19th of May. And this is the year 2020 of our Lord. A year which <laughs> seems to be taking an awfully long time. At least uh, that's uh, that's the perception that a lot of us have. I know, you know, when times are good, uh, the, the time just flies by. I, I think about the vacation my family and I took uh, to Germany this past uh, Christmas. It was... It was really a remarkable thing. And I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm bragging. It, it, we, we saved and saved. We scrimped. We sacrificed. It, uh, it was such an amazing opportunity to go and spend some time with my daughter and her husband who live in Germany. And, you know, I'd never been to Europe before. So it was a learning experience from a lot of different angles for me. And yet it went by so quickly. You know, part of it is the time change and, you know, the jet lag. And I got to say, It's brutal. For the 10 days that I was there, uh, I don't think I ever once felt completely rested, like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm back in my routine. No, it was it was <laughs> pretty much, I don't know what time it is, the, the whole time that I was there. But, again, the, the time went so quickly, and I'm, I'm convinced that time has a way of going super fast when everything is good, when everything is happy. And it has a way of putting the brakes on when things are not so good and not so happy. I don't think I'm the only one who perceives it this way, you know. Time slows down when things suck, but uh, it seems to to clip right along when it's good. So here we are, halfway, better than halfway now through the month of May, and uh, you know, two months now into the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic and everything. And it seems it feels like we're starting to emerge from this. But boy, there are some interesting battles shaping up among the things we're going to be talking about today. I don't know if you saw this, but a judge in Oregon declared Governor Kate, Kate Brown's uh, pandemic executive orders, which are among the most draconian in the country. Not surprising, considering who we're dealing with here, uh, struck him down, said, no, these are null and void. And uh, Kate Brown went to the Oregon Supreme Court and came back with a temporary injunction keeping them in effect until the 22nd. So three days from now, what will that be? Saturday? Anyway, no, Friday. And, um, you know, they want to review this and have this heard out before the Oregon Supreme Court. But I am encouraged to see that there are judges that are starting to push back and say, "This you are not a lawmaker, and therefore what you say cannot be taken with the same weight as actual legislation created by lawmakers. It's, it's long overdue. That's one of the things we'll be talking about today. We're going to talk a little bit about homeschooling, since a lot of people have had their first taste of homeschooling for the last couple of months. Some of them like it, some not so much. Harvard University and some of its publications, they have a real problem with homeschooling. Carrie McDonald had a brilliant article recently responding to a Harvard School law professor who basically said, look, homeschooling is dangerous because it can allow. Uh, how did she put it? I, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically un, unapproved attitudes or ideas to to uh, promulgate among these kids. Yeah, we got to protect them from their parents. They might teach them things that we don't want them to know. Well, a couple more Harvard publications have decided to weigh in. And their distortions and their demonization of homeschooling families are nothing short of breathtaking. But once again... Kerry McDonald, who I think may be actually the most qualified person in the country to comment on this, has a brilliant response. We'll share that with you. Um, I have an excerpt, or at least part of uh, uh, Lawrence W. Reed's new book, Was Jesus a Socialist? And it's, it's asking the question and answering the question, did Jesus despise money? This is a big one for me because... I've had this very interesting love-hate relationship with money my whole life to the point where I've actually feared it sometimes. Well, you know, money is evil or, you know, having enough of it is evil. No, I, I really seriously felt like that at one point. There's virtue in being poor. I've had to readjust my thinking on this, and I don't know if you've ever struggled with it, but anyway, we'll talk about that as well. I want to start out, though, talking about licensure. And in particular, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how government licensing is being used as a tool and as leverage to force compliance on business owners. And and I'm talking about the business owners. I'm not talking, you know, some shady fly-by-night guy who's over there, you know, screwing everybody over and just running to the bank with all of their money and laughing the whole way. I'm talking about these business owners who have been forced to abandon their businesses or at least to keep them closed down. And one of the ways that various states have said, we're going to make sure that you are in compliance, is they threaten to take away their license. Actually, there's a great article by Lawrence W. Vance. This is published on Loot Rockwell, Lawrence M. Vance. Sorry, Lawrence W. Reed, Lawrence M. Vance. I, there's my confusion right there. Lawrence Vance, writing for uh, LootRockwell.com, reminds us, first of all, about Carl Mankey. Remember, we talked about him last week, the barber in Michigan who recently reopened his barber shop in downtown Owasso in violation of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's executive order for non-essential businesses to remain closed. Now, keep in mind, this, this barber, Carl Mankey has been following all of the ridiculous government safety guidelines. He wears a mask, there's social distancing, uses an ultraviolet sanitizer on his tools. Well, customers came from around Michigan and waited for hours to get their hair cut. Mankey said, I'm doing walk-ins, appointments, working people in between appointments. He says, it's hard, but I love doing it. I'm just grateful that I can make a living again. Now, the 77-year-old barber says he wasn't trying to prove some point. He just needed to get back to work, like a lot of us. He's gotten used to having a roof over his head, clothes on his back, food on his table. He said, Governor Whitmer is not my mother. We're not children. We can manage our own lives. Well... The governor apparently didn't like that, so he received a citation for violating her executive order the third day that he was open. He also faces two misdemeanor charges for reopening his shop despite the state shutdown orders, a health department violation and the governor's executive order violation. So what else did the state of Michigan do? Oh, well, it revoked his barber's license. Lawrence Vance says elsewhere in the land of the free, restaurants that are reopening in violation of governor's executive orders are being threatened with having their liquor licenses taken away. In the fascist state of Pennsylvania, he writes, politicians in Beaver, Dauphin and Lebanon counties declared that their counties would begin returning to business as usual on May 15th. Jeff Haste, who's the Dauphin County Board of Commissioners chairman, wrote... It is time to reopen the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and return our state to the people as prescribed by our Constitution and not run it as a dictatorship. Pennsylvania's Democratic fascist governor, Tom Wolfe, responded with a threat to withhold federal stimulus money from counties and take away liquor licenses from restaurants that open up in defiance of state law. That is his decree. Here's what the governor said, quote, the enemy is a deadly virus set on destroying us. Yet over this past weekend, some have decided to surrender to this enemy. These are politicians who were elected to serve their fellow citizens. Others are business owners who have chosen to serve their customers by putting them in harm's way. These folks are choosing to desert in the face of the enemy. There will be a price to pay for this morally wrong behavior. To those politicians who decide to cave into this coronavirus, they need to understand the consequences of their cowardly act. End quote. Wow. Little drama there, Governor Wolf. The enemy, the language of war. Deserting in the face of the enemy. I mean, basically, you're not doing what I'm saying. Therefore, you are akin to the lowest of the low. As Lawrence Vance puts it, though, he says a greater enemy than the virus is the Pennsylvania governor. And he says all of this state level fascism brings up a point that most people just aren't thinking about. And that is that government licensing is just as illegitimate as government decrees ordering businesses to shut down. Since, as the Michigan barber said, the government is not our mother and neither are government bureaucrats, our fathers, babysitters, caretakers or nannies. Why is it that adults must get permission from the government to open a business, to engage in commerce, to work in certain occupations or have a particular vocation or provide a service to willing customers. In other words, why do Americans need permission from the government to work? That's a fair question. And I know that most of us have been trained to think, well, it's because uh, someone's got to keep us safe from the predators out there. Do we not have laws? Do we not have the ability, you know, to by tort for someone to seek redress for damages done to them by someone else through negligence or malfeasance? I think we do. So why the licenses? And I don't mean to get all biblical on you here, but I seem to remember once upon a time, somebody, maybe the creator of the universe, said something about, by the sweat of their brow shall they eat. I'm paraphrasing, but the idea being that uh, we're supposed to work. That's part of what this life is about. So why do we need permission from the government to work? As Lawrence Vance says, an occupational license is simply a certificate of permission and approval from some government-sponsored board that a job seeker is required to obtain before he can begin working in a certain occupation. And those licenses are most commonly issued by state governments. So we'll talk about that just the other side of our break. This is Loving Liberty. Please stay with us. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We're talking about licensure and how licenses, state issued licenses are becoming a very useful tool in basically keeping people in line when it comes to observing various executive orders and state decrees, not laws, but just orders requiring businesses to be shut down out of fears of coronavirus. Lawrence M. Vance, writing about this, reminds us that an occupational license is essentially, I'm going to paraphrase what he's saying here, but essentially it's a certificate of permission and approval. And and I like whoever put it this way. A license is when government takes a right from you and then sells it back to you for money. Because that's really what happens. A person can be perfectly competent, have caused no harm whatsoever, perfectly capable of doing whatever the work is required, but boy, it'll be treated like a crime unless they have paid money to the appropriate government agency in order to receive that permission slip, which is the license. Oh, they call it a fee, but it's a tax, and it's required. And it doesn't change their competency and it doesn't change anything about them other than the fact that they have gone with their hat in hand to government saying, please, sir, may I work for a living? Now, Lawrence Vance says it's not just professionals like doctors, lawyers, dentists and accountants who have to obtain a government license. Many other occupations are licensed as well. Barbers, auctioneers, child care workers, animal breeders, manicurists, interior designers, emergency medical technicians, skin care specialists, upholsterers, hair shampooers, bill collectors, fire alarm, fire alarm installers, really, midwives, makeup artists, crane operators, fishermen, security guards, security alarm installers, coaches, taxidermists, sign language interpreters, locksmiths, bartenders, taxi drivers, pest control applicators, funeral attendants, travel agents. It's exhausting, and it all depends on what state you live in. Now, he says proponents of occupational licensing would have us believe that without such government intervention in the economy, businesses would be full of untrained, incompetent, uneducated, unqualified, and unscrupulous workers who would take advantage of consumers, rip them off, provide them with poor quality service, injure them, and possibly kill them. But the occupations necessitating a license And the requirements to obtain a license vary so widely from state to state that the whole process seems quite arbitrary and illogical. And besides, since when is it the proper role of government to forbid or permit people to exercise what should be their natural right to make a living? And since when is it the proper role of government to forbid or permit people to freely contract with other people to provide them services? I know this makes some people uncomfortable. Particularly if you work in a licensed profession. Can I just go off on a little tangent here for a moment? Uh, Part of the reason it makes people uncomfortable is because they realize well, now if I have a license and uh, you don't, I don't want you competing with me. I want you to have to jump through all the hoops that I jumped through. I want you to have to suffer the way that I have suffered if you're going to practice in this particular line of work. And I kind of get where they're coming from. They don't want the competition. Maybe they fear, you know, increased competition. So this is a barrier to competition. This is a barrier to entry into a particular part of the workforce. But it's but it's wrong and, and it's it's not a smart way to do things. Better still. You could just do your work without having to go to the state and get its license and uh, allow others to do the same. Look, that don't take that as, a, as you know, any doubt in your abilities there. I have no doubt. If you are as good as you say you are, you will rise to the top. And through competition, you will become the sought out, well compensated and, and very popular person in your particular line of work. And if not, well, I don't know a nice way to say this, but uh, that's what competition is good for. It will uh, allow someone who will do a better job than you at a better price and provide greater value for the consumer to take their rightful place in the pecking chain or the pecking order, rather, of the, the market. All right, back to the article here. Lawrence Vance continues, although states opening up and removing the ridiculous restrictions they've imposed on businesses because of the coronavirus insanity is a good and necessary thing, it doesn't mean that we will be returning to a free society not when Americans still need permission from government to work. He says the solution is government licensing needs to be done away with, along with government lockdowns and restrictions. I know that we all have trust issues about this. Well, how are we going to know people are competent? And I would just ask you, ask historically, how did people know that someone was competent in a particular line of work? Uh, For instance, you wouldn't want somebody, you know, wiring your house who didn't have a good knowledge of what an electrician needs to know. Why do we think, though, that the state is the only entity that could could determine whether or not a person knows this? In the past, there were various guilds, professional organizations, private professional organizations that could come up with their own certification standards, their own uh, apprenticeships, their own, uh, I want to say licensing, but I don't think they would use the, the power of law to force people. Their Their certification would show this person has passed the basic competency to be considered a journeyman electrician or a master electrician. I don't see anything wrong with returning to that. I mean, for crying out loud, my son is a security guard. And he had to be licensed by the state. And, yes, there were various hoops he had to jump through in order to get that. Here's the thing, though. He got his security guard license just like a couple of weeks before all this coronavirus madness kicked in. And the first thing they gave him was what was called a provisional license. In other words, this was the temporary license, and we'll get you your uh, you know, your permanent license or your, your official license. I think it has to be renewed every so often. We'll get you that in the future. Well, guess what? Right after that, boom, shut down, and the Division of Professional Licensing, or Doppel here in the state of Utah, closed down as well. And so he was worried, what's going to happen? What happens when my provisional license expires? Does this mean that I'm out of a job? Technically, according to Utah's uh, standards and Utah laws, well, you can't be a security guard without a license. Now, fortunately, things did lighten up and he was able to get his uh, security guard license and, and it all worked out. But does that not seem like an extra level or layer of difficulty that really doesn't need to be there? I'm not disputing the fact that uh, he needs training and has received good training and will continue to receive, you know, ongoing training for his job. I just don't think the state needs to be the one overseeing it. And, I, and I'm not at all convinced that government licensing with those threats of you will do this or else. I don't think that's the best way to go. I know there are plenty who will disagree. We'll open up the phone lines in the next hour. If, if, if you want to put a place marker and come back to this one, we can do that. Let's talk for a moment about Oregon and what is going on there. There was a pretty fair amount of drama yesterday as an Oregon judge ruled that Governor Kate Brown's pandemic-related executive orders exceeded her authority as governor. And that case was filed by numerous churches and people of faith represented by the Pacific Justice Institute, or PJI. The orders resulted in church, business, and school closings and required the citizens in Oregon to remain under virtual house arrest. Now, Oregon law gives the governor broad authority in emergency situations. However, that authority is of limited duration. And the governor didn't go to the legislature to seek additional time as required by law. Now, Brad Dacus, who is the president of PJI, stated, we're thrilled with this decision in Oregon and believe it upholds the rule of law requiring the governor to comply with clear limitations placed in the statutes. Attorneys for the governor have appealed, though, to the Oregon Supreme Court And last night, the Oregon Supreme Court issued an emergency injunction at least until May 22nd when they say that they'll have time for both sides to prepare their cases and then the Supreme Court will consider them. So, yeah, there's some pretty interesting back and forth. On the one hand, I'm very grateful for the judge who stepped up and said, Okay, Ju- Governor, you have exceeded your authority here, and these orders of yours are considered null and void. I, can't Im- I can only imagine how many people breathed a sigh of relief to hear that. But the Oregon Supreme Court, which may or may not be a friend to freedom and proper government, races back. Well, now, hold on, not so fast. Let's have some time to hear this and see what kind of sophistry can be dreamed up in the meantime to keep those orders in place. We'll we'll keep you posted and we'll be back right after this. And just like that, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. I don't know if you caught this a couple of weeks ago. We talked about a uh, Harvard University law professor taking a very hard stance against homeschooling. And I mean hard enough that it was uh, it was like essentially uh, homeschooling puts children at risk. We've got to do something. I think she pretty much came right out and just said, we have got to pull the plug on homeschooling or at least regulate it so closely that parents cannot possibly teach their children attitudes or ideas that uh, that the rest of society may not find acceptable. Boy, that's that's fraught with some uh, some possibilities for abuse. Well, Carrie McDonald has uh, has been keeping on top of this writing for the Foundation for Economic Education And apparently two more publications from Harvard University have resumed the attack on homeschooling. And she says this is uh, this latest attack. Basically abuses reason and justice. So here's what she has to say. Carrie McDonald writes, Harvard University publications continue to present a skewed perspective of homeschooling. Spotlighting Harvard Law School professor Elizabeth Elizabeth Bartholow's call for a presumptive ban on homeschooling while failing to provide an accurate picture of American homeschooling. So in addition to the recent Harvard Magazine article on the risks of homeschooling, both the Harvard Crimson and the Harvard Gazette ran stories last week reinforcing Bartholow's one-sided view of homeschooling. McDonald says while Harvard's invitation-only summit to address homeschooling's, quote, problems politics and prospects for reform scheduled for next month has been postponed due to COVID-19. The disinformation campaign against homeschooling rolls on. Interestingly, interestingly, she writes in the recent Gazette interview, Bartholay admits that most parents are quite able to homeschool their children. She says, quote, I believe that the overwhelming majority of parents are capable of providing at least a minimal education at home without presenting any danger of abuse or neglect. End quote. Yet in recommending a presumptive ban on the practice, she would require that parents demonstrate that they have a legitimate reason to homeschool. Maybe their child is a super athlete. Maybe the schools in their area are terrible. Huh. I'm just letting that sink in for a moment here. They would have to have some kind of of uh, legitimate reason. Legitimate according to whom, I guess, is the first story we have to ask or the first question we have to ask. Who gets to make that call? And and Kerry McDonald goes on to point out that Bartholet would also require parents to, quote, demonstrate that they're qualified to provide an adequate education and that they would provide an education comparable in scope to what is required in public schools, as well as, quote, require that their kids participate in at least some school courses and extracurricular activities so they would get exposure to a set of alternative values and experiences, end quote. What? As Carrie McDonald says, in other words, parents may be able to get permission from the government to homeschool their kids if they can jump through certain government approved hoops and send their kids at least part of the time to government schools, to the government schools from which they are fleeing. I'm just looking at that uh, exposure to a set of alternative values and experiences. Hey, uh, Ms. Bartholay, why don't we try that with the kids who are actually in the uh, in the government schools? Let's expose them to alternative values. I mean, why don't we, uh, why don't you let, uh, why don't you let me and some of my friends take them to the gun range for a day and show them what responsible firearms ownership looks like? Help them understand the place that firearms have in the hands of civilized members of society. No? Okay, I mean, what if we were to, you know, let them attend church services? You know, exposure to alternative values and experiences. Or is there just one particular set of values and experiences, uh, government-sponsored, that you would like these kids to see? I think we know the answer, so I'll move on here. Carrie McDonald says, Barthelays rationale for this heavy-handed approach to controlling homeschoolers is that while most homeschooling parents won't abuse or neglect their children, a tiny few may... And so the entire homeschool population must be managed and monitored, including being subject to frequent home visits by government officials to make sure they're not doing anything wrong. Now, this guilty until proven innocent approach is not only antithetical to American ideals, it sacrifices the freedom of an entire group out of concern that a small sliver of that group could potentially do harm. And she writes the claim that homeschooling could lead to higher rates of child abuse is unfounded. In fact, three academics responded harshly to Bartholet's conclusions, writing at Education Next. Professor Elizabeth Bartholet's claims that homeschooling contributes significantly to the scourge of child abuse fails to survive scrutiny. Hmm. Some research shows that homeschoolers are less likely to be abused than their schooled peers. And Carrie McDonald says, as she's written previously, physical and sexual abuse by educators is rampant in public schools, which Bartholay holds up as the gold standard. Still, Bartholay argues that homeschooled children could be abused because they are not in the presence of school teachers and administrators who are mandated reporters of child abuse. Now, although Bartholay's recommendations against homeschooling were initiated well before COVID 19 hit, she uses the current school shutdowns as further evidence that parents unwatched by government officials will abuse their children. Bartholay says in the Gazette interview, quote, I do think, though, that the present near universal home education situation is illuminating. The evidence is growing that reports to child protective services have plummeted nationwide because children are removed from the mandated reporters that schools provide. Wow. Kerry McDonald says it's possible that declining CPS reports could indicate unreported child abuse, but it could also reveal a CPS system gone awry with overly aggressive reporting and investigative practices. I mean, talk about wanting to, to fit your, you know, the, the conclusion before you go looking for the facts. I think Ms. Bartholay has, is just, you know, grasping for straws here. Maybe they're in better hands with their parents. Who knows? Kerry McDonald says a 2018 in-depth report by the Hetchinger Report and HuffPost, for instance, found schools often use child protective services as a weapon against parents. According to this analysis, school employees use CPS as a way to coerce parents who resist a school's recommendations or approach. Reporters Rebecca Klein and Carolyn Preston wrote... Fed up with what they see as obstinate parents who don't agree to special education services for their child or disruptive kids who make learning difficult, schools sometimes use the threat of a child protection investigation to strong arm parents into complying with the school's wishes or transferring their children to a new school. That approach is not only improper, but it can be devastating for families, even if the allegations are ultimately determined to be unfounded, end quote. Curry McDonald says such a determination is how the vast majority of these investigations conclude, despite terrorizing parents and children. In her powerful book, They Took the Kids Last Night, How the Child Protection System Puts Families at Risk, family defense attorney and policy advocate Diane Redleaf finds that the CPS system has ballooned in recent years with millions of calls and family investigations, despite most of them being baseless. She writes in her introduction, in 2016 alone, 7.4 million children were reported as suspected victims of child abuse or neglect. Of this number, 4.1 million had a case referred for some CPS responsive action, ranging from finding no merit to the allegations and closing the case to referring the family for social services to a placement of the children into foster care. At the conclusion of a CPS investigation, 676,000 children were then labeled the victims of abuse or neglect. Now, the Hetchinger HuffPost report reveals that poor and minority families are the ones most likely to get caught in the CPS dragnet. And Redleaf's research reinforces this finding. She writes, quote, the child protection system most disproportionately intervenes against families of color and those who lack other forms of privilege. A system that is supposed to protect children from their parents ends up too often harming children's precious attachment to their parents, end quote. Now, Carrie McDonald says, look, child abuse is horrific and should never be tolerated. But the growing distrust of parents and related trend toward increased intervention in family life under the guise of protecting children may hurt more children than it helps. When families are weakened and parents are disempowered, children suffer. As Redleaf concludes in her book, quote, family advocates need to proudly proclaim that children's best interests are one and the same as their families' best interests. For there is no other way to protect children but to defend their families and to fight for the right of families everywhere to raise their own children. I'll post this in the show notes. I hope you'll take the time to read Carrie's article. I hope you'll actually go through the archives at fee and read more of the excellent articles that she has written, or maybe even grab yourself a copy of her book, unschooled raising curious, well-educated children outside the Unconve- outside the conventional classroom. Carrie has a wealth of knowledge that she brings to this as well as a lot of practical experience. And I think she is just one of those lone voices of reason out there in the wilderness pushing back against this this crusade to give the state greater and greater control not just over the children but over families themselves i think she's right to push back and i think we ought to stand with her this is loving liberty And once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Haidt. Thanks again for making this, pod, this broadcast and podcast a part of your day. And thank you for sharing the word with those who likewise are looking for something different than the red state, blue state tug of war that uh, seems to define uh, so much of the commentary going on out there. I hope, that, uh, I hope this is useful information. I will always do my best to just bring a little a light, truth, and insight to whatever it is that's going on in your life. So for the longest time, for the better part of the last year or so, I had the privilege of producing Lawrence W. Reed's podcast, The Reed Hour. And, I, you know, I had been familiar with uh, the Foundation for Economic Education only in passing up until a few years ago. But uh, I got to tell you that Larry Reed is one of the finest ambassadors of freedom that the world has known and his efforts truly are worldwide. He is in demand and he is traveling, or at least he was prior to uh, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. He was traveling pretty much every month. He was off to the far corners of the world, very well received, uh, just a loving and respected voice of freedom that, that is so sorely needed in our time. You want to talk about somebody who has just worn, worn his life out, in the service of his fellow man and his creator and the cause of freedom, Larry is that guy. And I was very thrilled. Uh, he he sent me a copy of his latest book, Was Jesus a Socialist? I don't know if you had the chance. He actually came and spoke and delivered a lecture on this at Liberty Hall back in, when was this, December? Whew. Wow. <laughs> that doesn't seem that long ago, but yeah, here we are, you know, five, almost six months down the road, and uh, that's... It's been that long since since we last saw him in person. Well, his book is marvelous and it tackles, you know, a lot of the the misunderstandings, you know, was Jesus a socialist? There are a lot of people who will try to politicize Jesus. But there's a great essay that is a part of this. And this is what I wanted to share with you. Some excerpts from Did Jesus Despise Money? And if you've had kind of a complicated relationship with money in your life, such as I've had, maybe this is something that can add some, some insight or some depth to your understanding. Lawrence W. Reed says, he starts with a quote here. Jesus regarded money as filthy lucre and the root of all evil, pronounced a student at one of my campus lectures a few months ago. Now, Larry says that's not an uncommon view, but it's also manifestly erroneous, completely and utterly false. The student was responding to my lecture titled, Was Jesus a Socialist?, based on a short essay I wrote in 2015. Larry says, I greatly expanded that essay into a book by the same title. It's available available for pre-order now from Fee, Barnes & Noble, ISI Books, and Amazon. The book examines a larger question of which money-related issues are a small part. Daniel Hannon of Great Britain wrote a terrific foreword. Editor and publisher Steve Forbes calls it a learned and well-argued masterpiece. And historian Burton Folsom says, thanks to this book, progressives will never again be able to claim with any credibility that Jesus would stoop to be a socialist. Larry says, I hope you'll order a copy for yourself and one for your pastor or priest or other interested party, because on this important topic, there's nothing on the market as convincing and comprehensive. He says, "Okay, thank you, readers, for indulging my advertising. But I got to tell you, having received his book and having been reading it, it is worth your while. Here's what he says about uh, did Jesus despise money? Larry Reed writes money in Jesus's day and what he said about it are interesting subjects worthy of attention, regardless of one's faith, denomination or lack of either. Let's take a look. First of all, he says Jesus himself never used the phrase rather filthy lucre. It appears only four times in the entire Bible. In each case, it's employed by someone else and always in reference to theft or dishonesty as in loot or ill-gotten gain. Theft and dishonesty are targeted for unqualified condemnation throughout both the Old and New Testaments and from numerous prophets and sages. For example, don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, advised John the Baptist when questioned by a group of soldiers. In Proverbs 11.1, we're told a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now, Larry says Jesus never suggested even remotely that money per se was an evil. He praised the earning of it through productive work and investment, as in the famous parable of the talents. He also advised careful stewardship of it in business, as in Luke 14 verses 28 through 30. He encouraged the private, voluntary giving of it to worthy causes and charities, as in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he praised those who supported ministries, missions, and the temple by their tithes and offerings, as in the story of the widow's mites in Mark chapter 12 and Luke chapter 21. On many occasions, he urged people to help each other, including by way of donating money to meet legitimate needs and improve conditions. And Larry Reed says, you and I have done the same, perhaps on a daily basis at work or at home. Encouraging someone to help a person is one thing, but compelling someone to give to give to help someone is quite another. Jesus called for personal, individual and free will based generosity, not coercive state run redistribution programs. Why do so many people think that because Jesus endorsed charitable giving, he would also endorse a compulsory welfare state? There's a world of difference between the two. And Larry Reed says, if I recommend that you read a book, would you assume that I was supporting the state, forcing you to read it? When your mother told you to eat broccoli, did you think she was endorsing a federal department of vegetables? Okay, to be fair, sometimes it felt that way, especially if she was threatening to withhold dessert. But I digress. He says, more than once, Jesus cautioned against letting one's character succumb to the harmful temptations and excesses that often accompany money. Similarly he favored eating, but not gluttony, sleep, but not sloth, fasting but not starving, drinking, but not inebriation. And Paul, Jesus's most famous and prolific apostle of the first century, warned against the love of money, but not money itself. In fact, to argue that a medium of exchange is somehow inherently evil would be one of the dumbest things for anybody to claim. As Larry Reed says, any economist will tell you that money, especially honest money that isn't adulterated by fiat, fraud or false weights, facilitates a level of trade and standards of living that neither a primitive barter system nor a state run allocation scheme rather could ever hope to produce. Biblical censure of dishonest money issued by inflating governments is at least as old as Isaiah's excoriation of the Israelites. Thy silver has become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Paper money first made its appearance a thousand years after Jesus' time. Money in his day consisted exclusively of metallic coin. Judea being a Roman province when Jesus lived, its money was officially that of the regime of Imperial Rome's first emperor, Augustus, who ruled from 30 B.C. to 14 A.D., and that of his successor, Tiberius, in power from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D., They issued a gold aureus and a silver denarius in a bimetallic regime whereby one aureus was equal to 25 denarii. When Jesus asked the Pharisees whose image was on the denarius, the reply was Caesar's, so it was probably that of Augustus. Jerusalem was a center of international commerce at the time, so citizens of the area likely saw the coins of many places and composed of other metals as well, giving rise to a thriving business of money-changing. Now, Jesus famously drove some of those money changers from the main temple and never from a bank or a market because it was not an appropriate activity for such a holy place. Certainly, there was no reason to tolerate any disruption of services or harassment of worshipers. Ancient coinage expert David Hendon tells us money changers and animal merchants were ubiquitous around the temple, even in the outer court of the Gentiles. The money changers and sellers of livestock were forced to operate outside of the temple. Indeed, archaeological excavations along the western wall of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem have revealed a street and a small row of shops that likely housed money changers, sellers of small animals, and souvenir merchants. Theirs was a good business, especially during the pilgrimage holidays. And it's easy to imagine how money changers and other merchants could become rowdy while competing for business. Change here or our commissions are lower. This competition must have reached a point of offensiveness when Jesus upended their tables. Once a man approached Jesus and asked him to use his power and influence to redistribute the wealth from an inheritance. The man claimed his brother received more than he should have, so Jesus should see to it that some of his brother's money be taken away and given to him. Jesus' response was to rebuke the man for his envy. Who made me a judge or divider over you, Jesus asked. Clearly Jesus didn't see money as a convenient instrument by which we can rob one to pay another to achieve wealth distribution. Frequently misunderstood is this important admonition from Matthew chapter 6 and Luke 16 where Jesus said no man can serve two masters for he'll either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now some readers interpret this as a blanket repudiation of money. If the choice is starkly defined as God or money one or the other and no in between then of course a believer should opt for the former. But note the context. Jesus wasn't talking about a consumer in a physical marketplace. You wouldn't get very far if you said to the clerk in the department store, instead of cash for that shirt, let me give you a sermon. See, when Jesus made this statement, he was speaking to a group of Pharisees, noted for their love of money above everything. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes. I really would encourage you to take a look at it. The key words, Larry says, are serve and master's. What do you worship? Which master do you listen to when their directives contradict one another? It's a fascinating take and very enlightening, especially in a time such as ours.